0: The next four weeks, we are going to look at four of the shortest books of the Bible, and I'm calling this uh, series Urgent, Urgent. You and I live in a fascinating society where communication is fast. It's easy. You know, I can send a text to Mark when he's in Thailand, and if he's awake and not asleep, instantly he will get it. Now, that's not the way it was 50 years ago for our missionaries. That's not the way it was for any of us. But communication is fast. It's efficient. It's one of the perks of living in the 21st century. It's uh, amazing that within seconds, you can let hundreds or even thousands of people hear your voice by posting something on social media. Now... We've got to remember that in the day the Bible was written, that was not true. In ancient days, specifically in the first century, when the New Testament was being written, the process of communication was much different and much slower. Think about it for a moment. Even the act of Paul wanting to write a letter and send to a church was quite complicated. There was no postal service, no Twitter, no social media. If you wanted to send a letter from one place to another, you had to find somebody who was going to be traveling that journey. And it might take them days or weeks. You had to talk them into taking your letter with them. And then once they got to the city, they had to go that extra mile to find the person that you wanted to give the letter to and then you'd have to hope that they would follow through. And because of that, the letters that Paul wrote tended to be quite long. You Ever notice that? Quite lengthy. You know, they weren't limited to a tweet, 144 words or less. (laughs) No, in the day that the Bible was written, the letters seemed to be long because if you're gonna go to that much trouble, To get a letter delivered, you took time to really think it through and to cover a broad range of topics. And we see that in most of the letters that are written. You see it particularly in Paul's writings. When he wrote to the church in Rome, think about the depth of that letter, the length of that letter, maybe even the church in Corinth. They're very detailed. They cover a lot of topics. I was kind of curious a couple months ago about uh, the length of certain books of the Bible, which were the longest, which were the shortest. And I kind of had this idea about doing a a series on the single chapter books of the Bible. And uh, here's a chart that I found that I think is really interesting that shows you uh, the longest and the shortest books of the Bible are you ready for it? Here it comes. <laughs> let me just, let me just share with you, okay? Um, the longest book of the Bible is Jeremiah in the Old Testament. It's thirty-three thousand words. Now, the average book of the Bible of all sixty-six books, the average is about. About the length of Daniel, which is 9,200 words. The shortest book of the Bible is one that we're going to look at next week, and it's 3 John, only 219 words. 219 compared to 33,000 from the shortest to the longest. I was thinking about, about that. Since the process of sending a letter was so complicated, when someone was going to go to so much trouble to get a letter someplace, if someone sent a very, very short letter, it must have been a priority. You knew that somehow that letter was really super important. A one-page letter should be considered urgent. Right to the point. We do that in our emails. If you're writing Aunt Mabel, and you wanna tell her about the kids' swimming lessons and what you've got planned for fall, and you know, you go on and on and on, and that's all good information. But if you need to tell Aunt Mabel that cousin John is in the hospital, your email might only be one paragraph. Dear Aunt Mabel, sorry to tell you this, But Cousin John's in the hospital, would you pray for him? Short and sweet and to the point. So I thought, maybe the letters that sometimes we overlook in the Bible, the one-page letters, the one-chapter letters, are really important. Maybe even more so than we realize, they are short and to the point. There's five one-chapter letters in the Bible. Four of them are in the New Testament. One is in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Obadiah. We're not going to deal with that. We're just going to look at the four New Testament letters that are less than one page. Two of the four written by John, including the one we're going to look at today. One was written by Paul, and another by Jude. And each of them addressed really important topics. Things that needed to be dealt with quickly urgent things. Sweet and to the point. So today, as we begin this series, we're going to look at 2 John, written by John the Apostle, the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John. And it's written to what he refers to as the chosen lady and her children. Most scholars would agree that that's referring to a church and all of the members of that church, and perhaps a group of churches that would be like house churches. So what I'm trying to say is it's an open letter, not just to one specific church, but to a group of churches, a body of believers. So when we read it, we can include ourselves and say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit had John write this as an open letter because it applies to us when I ask you first assembly in August of 2022 let's read the entire book it's only 13 verses right it's one of the shortest books of the bible second john the elder to the lady chosen by god and to her children whom i love in the truth And not I only, but also to all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded. And now, dear lady... I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. The urgency of 2 John is love. I'm asking that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you've heard from the beginning, his commandment is that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who did not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world, and any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or even welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink Instead, I hope to visit you, talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is chosen by God, send their greetings. I think it's very obvious the urgency of 2 John, this very short one chapter, one page book of the Bible, is love. First of all, Love, friends, is the fundamental belief of the Christian faith, so different than other major religions. And that's the thing I want you to notice. I know that seems like a basic, common, ordinary comment, but sometimes we just lose focus. More than anything, more than anything, the Christian life is a life of love as taught by Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we make it about other things. And when we do, John says we are running ahead. Isn't that what verse 9 says? When we abandon the fundamental doctrine of love and get caught up in other stuff, we're running ahead. We are not continuing in the teaching of Christ. If you want to continue in the teaching of Christ, the basic fundamental belief and action That you must have in your life is love. Love is the fundamental belief of the Christian faith. For God so loved the world. Jesus himself made it clear. The disciples asked him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus answered, of course, with a quote from the Torah from Deuteronomy, and he said, Well, It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment. And then Jesus went on to say in Matthew 22, 39, and the second one is, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus summed it all up in verse 40 of Matthew 22. He says everything else, all the laws All the prophets, all the other religious trappings, all hang on these two commandments love God, love people. In other words, he was saying, man, if you want a summary of the Christian life, it's love. It's love God, love others, love yourself. That's hard for some of us to love ourselves. But it's crucial that you see your value the same way that God sees your value. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 13. We do not have this on on the screen, but I do want to read it. John 13, beginning with verse number 33. My children, this is red letter, Jesus talking. I'll be with you only a little while longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I'll tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, when someone is about to leave, their last words are probably worth listening to. It's what they want you to hear. And Jesus says, I'm getting ready to leave. And then he says, I'm going to give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you so you must love one another by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another friends if you have been toying with any other equation of Christianity that doesn't begin and end with the doctrine of love you've missed the mark according to Second John, according to Jesus. Because Christianity is first and foremost about true, genuine love. And we could take time to unwrap that. I'm not going to do it this morning. But sometimes love means that you need to speak the truth. Doesn't mean that you just embrace whatever comes along. I think we're more mature than that. We understand that. But even in discipline, I just read this morning about the Father disciplines me through my tribulations. Now, when I'm going through a trial or tribulation, you know, I like to blame Satan. Or blame you. (laughs) Or maybe even blame my own stupidity. But the Bible says, man, when you're going through a trial or tribulation, you need to consider the fact maybe God is disciplining you because he loves you so much. He corrects those that he loves. So even in the tough stuff of life, it needs to be done in love as the way God loves us. Love is fundamental, friends. It's supreme. It's the gospel in one word, love. First thing that I see here in 2 John. The second thing I see is obedience. Now this gets a little bit more tricky, a little bit more convicting for us. But it's very clear, love and obedience go hand in hand. Let's look at it again, verse 6. And this is love, okay, So we know we have to walk in love. So now he's going to tell us, what is love? This is love, though we walk in obedience to his commandments. Don't fool yourself by thinking you love God and remain disobedient to the word of God. Because it doesn't line up. Because the Bible says, if we love, we will obey. You can't separate love and obedience. And I know that's a heavy word, obedience, obey, submission. Oh, man, that is intimidating because we often associate it with certain behaviors, like things we're not supposed to do. (laughs) So often when we think about obedience, we're thinking about doing this as opposed to to not doing that, and of course that's part of it, but it's only a a small part. It's so much bigger than that. Obedience is just not about walking the straight line. Obedience, according to John, is how you treat one another. Even the person who's your brother or your sister that you might not agree with. Isn't that what verse six says? And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands, and you've heard from the beginning his command, as that you walk in love. And many Christians, you know, get this wrong. And at times, I've gotten it wrong. Because we think that holiness and obedience is about doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. We've all got caught in that trap. We just prayed for our students. And, you know, they're going to be graded. That's kind of ingrained in our mind, in our culture. So, therefore, we view our walk with God in the same way. Uh Uh-oh, we're going to be graded. And we're so obsessed with grading that it all becomes about me. Oh, I've got to perform like this, so I'm a good student. I'm a good disciple, so God will love me. Well, therefore, the focus becomes our performance instead of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And we can do the same thing to one another. We think, boy, if I'm not making a a passing grade, I'm going to get put on the back burner. But see, real obedience goes deeper than do's and don'ts. When we talk about obedience, it's not just do's and don'ts. It goes into the selfless love of others. Can we be so obedient that we love those who don't love us back? I have to pray often, God, help me to love the unlovable. It's easy to love people that love me, a little bit more difficult for people who don't love me. And if you're walking that thin line that you call holiness... And we all want to be holy. If you're doing it with an attitude of, you know, condensation toward everyone else, then you're not truly walking in love. You're not walking in obedience. You're not really living holy even though you're checking the box that you've made for yourself. Because love and obedience go hand in hand. It's neither either or, it's always both and. Got that? It's both and, love and obedience, according to our urgent message from John. The third thing I want you to see, and I love this. John says, you know, I've got much more to say to you, but I don't want to use paper and ink. I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face. Love up close is better than love at a distance. Love up close is better than love at a distance. Once again, John is emphasizing the personal nature of the Christian life. We're not isolated. We're together. It's a community of faith. Being with one another is more important than pen and ink or keyboards or Facebook Messenger. Now, all those things are good. I sent out five or six texts this morning to friends of mine who are in the ministry just to remind them, hey, I'm thinking of you. I'm praying for you. I hope you have a great Sunday. But you know what would be even better? If I could actually sit down and have a meal with them like I will with Mark before he heads off to his next ministry assignment. I'm not saying it's not good to reach out and love somebody from a distance. I'm just saying it's even better when you can be together face to face. John is emphasizing the personal nature of the Christian life. This road that we're on called discipleship is not traveled by books and tapes and podcasts and TV preachers, even the good ones. Nothing wrong with those, but that's not the primary way that we're discipled. There's study involved. I understand becoming a disciple. You should listen to good sermons and, and read good books. But friends, the most powerful moment in the formation of becoming a disciple happens face to face. I have books on my shelf by theologians that have PhDs, that have been to Israel, that are archaeologists. I mean, they've got all that intellectual knowledge, and I enjoy that. And it's part of my discipleship journey. But you know, the one thing I look forward to every single week is coming on Thursday morning and meeting with about seven or eight other guys. And hearing, hearing what God's doing in their life, hearing the testimonies of men who are older than I am, who can disciple me face to face. I love coming on Sunday mornings. I love to hear your stories of, hey, guess how God answered my prayer this week? You see, that's even better than reading it out of a book. It's to experience And every one of us need to find that place that we can be discipled face to face. You know, through my years, I've had many incredible worship experiences in solitude. Sometimes I love to be alone and, you know, listen to music that just moves my soul. But the greatest worship experience I've ever had are always in the corporate setting with brothers and sisters. And I, I know that everyone who is even watching online would agree with me. And I'm glad we have our live stream audience. But, you know, worshiping by yourself in your living room is not the same as being here in the house of God with brothers and sisters together. Because that's the way God made us. The kind of learning experiences that are less about increasing knowledge and more about creating life change happens in the presence of other people. In the context of a class, maybe it's a, a small group, maybe it's a home Bible study, it's the power of community. So that's what John's saying here, he, he just wants us to know. That there's more than just words on a paper. He wanted to see them face to face so that their joy might be complete. And I'm thankful for technology. I'm glad that we can communicate with people around the world. Uh, But it's just not the same as sitting down with someone face to face. Again, because we're made for community. So even with all the wonderful, fast, efficient methods we have of technology and build relationships. Build relationships with brothers and sisters and people who will help you in your spiritual journey. God's not looking for a bunch of individuals (laughs) who love him and just want to serve him as individuals. Now, I know God sees us Personally, he knows us individually but you know, when God looks down at the earth he's not just looking at the assemblies of God or the church of God or the United Methodist Church he sees his bride he sees a community because love is the be all end of the Christian life It's our most fundamental belief, our highest command. In the previous letter, uh, 1 John, which is not one of the four that we're going to be looking at, but here's what he says in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Fundamental, basic definition of God, love. I love that scripture, yet I hate that scripture because it haunts me. It says, whoever does not love does not know God. So when I struggle (laughs) to love people, it helps me to immerse myself more into the presence of Jesus. And say, Lord, it's hard for me to love, but I want to love. I want to know love because you're love. Will you help me? That's why John's letter is so urgent, why it's so important. His commandment is that we walk in love. As I kind of wrap things up, I just want to share one other aspect of urgency that John addresses in this letter. You know, this letter about what we're to believe about Jesus. In the first century, uh, there were many who were trying to make Christianity about something other than love. I'll give you two examples. This is back in the day, this is written, okay? There was a group of people called the Judaizers, and they tried to make Christianity about circumcision, about following Jewish laws, and you've gotta remember this, this whole Merger between the Jews and the Gentiles were very, very difficult. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the Jews wanted people to convert to what they would call the way, but they also wanted people who came into their church to act like them and do the same thing, you know, and uh, keep the feast and to keep all the rules and regulations. That was very, very hard for them. And the Judaizers tried to make Christianity about those superficial things, circumcision and the Jewish laws. And Paul had a lot to say about that in different letters, that we're not saved through following rules and regulations. We're just saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad for the grace of the Lord? So there's some people who have, instead of preaching the gospel of love, they're preaching the gospel of performance and what you have to do. And then there's this other group of people that are very active, and they're called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that the spirit was good, our basic spirit, but that all matter was evil. Therefore, Jesus couldn't be both God and man. So Jesus was actually just a spirit who only seemed to be human, and that somehow all of Scripture had this deep, hidden, secretive meaning that couldn't be understood on the surface, only if you had special insight, special wisdom. And John said, in effect, to the church here that he was writing, don't let either of these groups hijack your faith. Don't get sucked into either one of these arguments. Don't listen to them. In fact, he said, don't even give them a welcome or a platform to proselytize. Because they're not teaching the truth about Jesus. They've abandoned the basic gospel of love, and they've made it into something else. It's urgent that we love one another. The foundation of our love is the gospel of Jesus. We know that. John 3.16, most of us have memorized or we're familiar with it. It's the basic summary of the gospel. That God would love us so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believes would not perish but have everlasting life. There are other things that do need to be addressed but they're not our primary message. There are people who will even today, make it about stuff that it's not about. They make it about prosperity instead of love. They make it about cultural wars instead of love. We have churches that are are growing leaps and bounds because they've made it about a political stand instead of love. The message has been twisted and distorted into their own agenda. Friends, instead you and I need to look at the urgent message of John and proclaim the original biblical gospel message that Jesus came into the world to save us from our sins and to give us a new life. And he called us to live a life of love. And he'll help us live a life of love. He'll help us to take that message of love and new life to the world. Just as Mark encouraged us at the end of his presentation, we've been chosen, but we've been chosen with a purpose, to declare God's love. Oh, there's a thousand ways you can put this into practice this week. I actually started writing some things down, and I felt checked in my heart. I thought, nope, that's the job of the Holy Spirit, (laughs) not my job. I believe the Holy Spirit as we conclude our time together will give you some specific ways that you can love a little bit more like Jesus this week. And it really begins with our prayer. God, help us love others. Help us love each other as you've loved me so that every person I meet today has a sense of your love for them. It's got to be our prayer this week. It's urgent. Taken from one of the shortest books of the Bible. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that this book of 2 John has such a clear message about the urgency of love. And God, I pray that in the closing moments of our time together, that your Holy Spirit will show us how we can be better represent, uh, representatives of your love. For our neighbor, for our brother, our sister, for our coworker, And Lord, as hard as it is, even for our enemies, because that's what you've asked us to do, is to love and bless and pray for our enemies. God, there's no way we can do that on our own. Lord, guard us from the temptation to make the gospel about something different than it really is. Help us, God, not to build a mountain on a doctrine. Help us not to get pulled into the divisiveness of our culture and get that mixed up with what you want us to do as a church, which is to proclaim your love. Lord, thank you for this time we've had together. I pray you'll bless each person who's here and those who are watching online. Help us to be people who will truly love like Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Here of total
1: loss. (laughs) So these are all newbies, I mean, to you. These are all newbies to me. They are local bees. I bought them from uh, people out at Sunny Slope. Okay.
0: I want to take just a minute to survive the winter. Years ago, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called The Seasons of Life. It's a devotional. And it's about how, as Christ followers, we go through seasons of life. There's the fall, there's the winter, there's the spring, there's the summer. And he talked a lot about the winter of life. And just as these bees have to survive the winter Winter represents difficulties for you and me. Some of you might be in a winter of life today. Maybe going through a divorce. Maybe you've just been diagnosed with a terminal illness. Maybe you have bills to pay and no money to to pay those bills. You've got to survive the winter. And I thought about that as the bees Caden said, store up honey to survive the winter? Have we stored up what we need to survive the winters of our life? Have we hidden God's word in our heart? (laughs) Remember, we used to have a JBQ team, junior Bible quiz, and their shirts had Psalm 119 on them. That said, hide, I'm hiding my, uh, your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. But friends, we're called to finish the race. We're called to, to keep true to the Lord. And sometimes we need to make sure that we have the reservoirs. That's why it's important, daily devotionals. Even if you don't feel like you need them today, you need it to store up for those winter times of your life. Now we know that, you know, Jesus is always gonna be Lord and, and even he's conquered death itself. We, we come out winners in the end. That doesn't happen in a beehive because you said bees die and I'm assuming that means that at some point the queen dies. Yes. And so if the queen's in charge of all the bees and she
1: dies, what happens? Is it just chaos? Well, what's supposed to happen and what happens most of the time (laughs) is uh, the queen lays eggs right up until she dies. So as soon as the workers figure out that the queen's no longer there, they are able to take an egg that is less than two days old and start feeding it what's called royal jelly instead of bee bread. And uh, within, I believe it's 16 days, a new queen will hatch. And as soon as the new queen goes on her mating flight and comes back, she will start laying eggs and everything will be normal. But sometimes that doesn't happen. Uh, For one reason or another, a new queen doesn't hatch or there's no eggs that the workers can uh, take and make into a new queen. So if uh, the hive does not have a queen for a couple weeks, after a while, one of the workers may develop uh, the ability to lay eggs, but since she's a worker bee and not the queen bee, uh, she doesn't lay fertilized eggs, so she's only able to lay drones and the drones, of course, don't do anything for the hive. So after a while, the population of the hive will be mostly drones, and there's no way that hive's going to survive for more than a few months. So it's almost like a false queen? Yeah, it's like a false queen. The worker, it's called a laying worker. She's, She's like a false queen, and all the bees think of her as a queen, but she doesn't have the abilities that the queen has.
0: Hmm. I wonder spiritually if there's times that we are following a false queen or false king or maybe allow something to be an idol in our life. It's a good thought. It's a sobering thought. That's why the Bible says, be on guard. Guard your heart. Kate and I were talking just this morning how sometimes even ministry in church can take the place of Jesus in our life. We're we're so involved in church, so involved in ministry, but we don't have that daily personal relationship with Jesus And in essence, we're serving a false queen. We're serving an idol. We're serving ministry instead of Jesus himself. So we would encourage all of us today to get rid of anything in our life that might be taking the place of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Maybe things that hamper our productivity We've got to make sure that Jesus is still in charge of our life. Just like every single bee in this colony has the same goal of survival, we've got to have that same goal. <laughs> Keep our eyes on Jesus. You know, the old song says, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face. All sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. Now we know this analogy breaks down here because the queen bee dies and Jesus never dies. He, I mean, he died and he, he conquered death and he's living forever. But it's interesting, um, this whole idea that a whole hive can die if they're not focused on that queen. Now you say you lost your entire hive this year.
1: Yeah, I lost, lost all, I think I had four or five hives. Does that happen often? Well, actually, it's a big problem in the U.S. Uh, 30 to 50% of hives die over winter every year.
0: 30
1: to 50% yep. of all beehives in the U.S.
0: die over the winter. Yeah, That's not unlike the collapse of the church in our day and age. There are more churches closing every week in the U.S. than are being planted every week. There are less churches now in the United States than there were five years ago. As the beehives are dying, churches are dying. You might have read recently the Gallup poll. They've been doing polling for 80 years. For the first time in history, church membership in the United States has fallen below 50%. So our churches are dying like beehives are dying. That's why it's important that we go back to that third point. We need to guard the mission. We need to keep the main thing the main thing. I want to share out of Matthew chapter 16 an encouraging verse. It says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail or not overcome it. So even though church membership, churches are declining in the U.S., it's not up to us to build the church, but it is up to us to do our part. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're wrapping things up here, and then we're going to let these bees out and see how fast people exit. <laughs> see how fast <laughs> we can evacuate the building. No, we're really not going to do that. First 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. I want you to listen. It says, I, uh, Paul's writing, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, God has been making it grow. It's not up to you to build a church, not up to me to build a church. It is up to us to do what God's calling us to do. Just like the drones and the worker bees. What's God calling you to do? Scripture goes on to say, Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose. They're working together, right? That's what the scripture says. And they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. That's kind of a convicting thing. Am I doing what God's called me to do? Because that's how I'm going to be judged. And that's how I'm going to be rewarded. And the same for you. Verse number 9, we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field. You are God's building. I just encourage all of us today to think about what we've learned from the bees. Maybe you're a drone. Maybe you're a worker bee. Maybe you're called to be a leader. Now, remember, he said some drones do what they're supposed to do. They're not all just lazy people who (laughs) fly around,
1: right? That's true. There Uh there are drones. There's a a few drones that (laughs) get to.
0: I I don't know. I I just feel like we need to ask the Holy Spirit to show us what is our place in our local church, what is our place in the kingdom of God, and then as the Bible says... (laughs) If we come after Jesus, we have to deny ourselves, Put aside our agendas, remind ourselves of the Great Commission. It's about spreading the hope and the love of Jesus. Bonhoeffer once said, when a Christ calls a man, he bids them to come and die. Talking again about what we might want to do individually. Because in a colony of bees, it's not about me, it's about us working together. Everything is done for the good of the whole. And that's the way it should be in the church. If we're going to survive, if we got to be willing to lay aside our own wishes for the well-being of the church, that's what authentic community is really all about. And I'm glad to have Caden part of our community. Caden's one of our youngest members of our church. He's worked behind the scenes He shared some things and I just appreciate your insight. Thank you for sharing and thank you for bringing the bees. Yeah, you're welcome. One last scripture found in Psalm 119 quoted that earlier. But this has to do with the importance of scripture in our life Psalm 119 103 says how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey in my mouth as a reminder of our lesson on bees today we're going to give you a bit of honey as you leave That's right. As you leave this morning, we're going to have our host at the door, and we want you to take a piece of this candy, this bit of honey, to remember our lesson today, but more importantly, to remember that it's the word of God that is sweeter than honey. Find your place. Respect your place, but also respect the place of others. Communicate. Stay focused on what God's called us to do. The Great Commission. Let's guard that commission. Let's preach the gospel. Let's make disciples. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together. And I thank you for Caden, for his love for you. Thank you for his family, Lord. His parents and his grandparents. Multiple generations so faithful and committed to this church throughout decades. And God, I just thank you for what we've learned today by looking at the bees. And I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us will find our place to serve you, to find our place to be part of something bigger than ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you will just combine our hearts together in love and harmony here at Wenatchee First Assembly, but also working together with other churches in our valley, because it's not about us, it's about the kingdom of God. I just pray, oh God, that we will respect one another, that we will do what we have been called to do, and we'll leave the results up to you, because you are the Lord of the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.